You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may join me in reading Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. Psalm 19, 7 through 10. Excuse me, 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Andy. Uh, And good morning, everyone. It has been a pleasure and joy for me to be worshiping with you all this morning. Uh, Over the last week, our pastor, Sean, uh, has hopefully had a very restful vacation. uh, And I have been given the pleasure to preach God's word this morning. So we are going to be taking just a small break from the book of Hebrews. And we'll be looking at, of course, the Psalms today. Uh, Before I jump into it, I do want to remind you that we are going to have family worship today. However, we do have a restless kids room available if it is needed, and the sermon should be uh, fed into there uh, for your convenience. Uh, Before I really jump in, uh, just pray with me one more time. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that we get to hear your word. Please be with me as I preach Please soften our hearts to receive your word, and let what I say be faithful and true. All this I pray in the name of your Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I was thinking about what text I wanted to preach, uh, a conviction came over my heart. One of the hardest things that I've had to recognize about myself is that my love for God's revelation His word has a tendency to grow cold over time. When I first became a Christian at 18, there was a certain fire that I had that came with my conversion. And key to my conversion was the belief that I had to take God's word seriously if I am to call myself a Christian. I think this is a very natural conviction that we can have, and I hope that many of you either have shared it at your conversion or share it now. At that time, that conviction motivated me to devour the Bible. I started in the New Testament, and I just read all the way through to the end of Revelation. I was so zealous for reading my Bible that I even wore a leather pouch that I bought from the Renaissance Festival, and I put a small New Testament in it. That way I could always have a real and physical Bible with me at any time. Uh, This was to the chagrin of Kennedy, uh, who was my girlfriend at the time. Why she did not leave me then and there is a mystery. (laughs) 
Uh, despite this odd choice of accessories, I really think that this love that I had for the Bible was a good thing. I would read for hours on end. However, I can't say that that same intense desire is there all the time. This is not to say that I've lost any amount of faith or that I never have that passion for God's word. After all, I mean, I believe God more now than I did eight years ago. And I spent many years in seminary studying God's word and I loved almost every moment of it. However, that initial desire and love for God's word that drove me to read for hours can fade. I don't think that I'm alone in this. I think it is in fact a very common experience for God's people. We get distracted and we can be very forgetful. It is easy to let our Bibles collect dust on our nightstands or on our tables as we go about our day doing good things like working or taking care of our kids or our hobbies. It is my desire today to help you rekindle the fire and love for God, God's word. And if you are not someone that has grown a little cold for your love for God's word, I pray that through our text today, you'll be encouraged to keep staying the course, to grow in our love of God's word. Then let us turn to our text today, Psalm 19. I have a few general observations about Psalm 19 that I want to make before we dive into the details. First, as always, it is important to recognize the context of our passage. Our text immediately follows the previous part of the psalm, and I want to give just, just a brief overview. If you read the whole psalm, there is a natural flow from what is said in verses 1 through 6 to our text. In the previous verses, David is describing how the heavens declare the glory of God and how this declaration flows through all the earth. When we look to the sky, we see the great beaming sun or the brilliance of the stars and their countless number or the soft light of the moon. All of it declares God's glory. It reminds me a lot of Romans 1 where Paul teaches that God has made himself known through all creation. And this is what is called general revelation. Creation itself is what we see day to day and all of it points to God. Starting at verse seven, there is a shift in focus though from general revelation to special revelation, God's word. David begins to use various titles for scripture, and we'll look at each of them, and they each emphasize different nuances of the word. Really, this passage is just a summation of the full efficiency of the word of God for God's people. Each line describes what the scripture is, as well as the effect it has on us. As we focus in then on each of the line, we are focusing on different facets of God's word as if we were turning a diamond and examining its facets. However, it is all talking about and all about God's word. By looking at God's word from many angles, 
we will see how wonderful and powerful and great it is. And I want this to drive you and me to have a greater and greater love for the scriptures. If your love seems cold, look to Psalm 19. With all that said, let's get into the particulars and look at the text at hand. In verse 7 we read, The law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The first aspect of God's word that we read is that it is perfect. The law is perfect. Now this title given here, Law, can be a moment of pause for a lot of Christians because we are taught a lot about the law. We get taught over and over again that we are not under the law, but we're under Christ. We are made righteous apart from the law or that works done under a law or like a curse. All of this is true, but I do not think that is what is in view here. That is a different law being talked about. While the title of law is used, I think a better translation would be doctrine or teaching. The doctrines of God are perfect. Uh, the theologian and pastor Matthew Henry says in his commentary, it is to be understood as meaning all the teachings of true religion. So what is in view here is not just the Levitical ceremonies and sacrifices, but it is the whole of God's teaching and instructions to his people. Now, it is true and it should be observed, observed that as David penned the psalm, he had the different teachings and doctrines that he followed that we do not today. We have the benefits of Christ coming to fulfill the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel. However, it is a mistake for Christians to think that there then is no laws or doctrines for us. For instance, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.44 Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not covet, have no other gods, all commandments of Exodus 20. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 2.38 These are just a sample of the divine instruction given to the church that are still binding to us today. So while we are saved by faith, there, let us always remember that there are commandments and teachings for us today to follow. So, what does David then say about this doctrine? verse 7, that it is perfect. It is not enough that we recognize that God has given us teaching, but we must realize its perfection. It is without error. It is wholly good. It is without blemish or corruption or evil. Pastor John MacArthur uh, makes the very same points, uh, but he adds to it that the word perfection can also mean complete there is nothing absent from God's word that we need. 
Not only this, 2 Timothy 3.16 makes the point that the man of God is equipped and made complete by Scripture itself. Reading on, we see that the perfect doctrine of God revives the soul. Reviving here can mean restoring, transforming the soul. And the soul is our inner being. It is our true self. So the power of God's teaching is our revival. But what precisely is that revival? John Calvin says in his commentary that revival here is about conversion. And this is just one interpretation. Uh, in fact, if you look at some older translations of this text, such as the King James, it will say, instead of reviving the soul, conversion of the soul. While earlier in the psalm, David shows that God has revealed himself and his glory through the heavens, this is insufficient for the salvation of man. We read again in Romans 1 that, in fact, uh, general revelation only serves to condemn man so that he is without excuse. It is by the gospel, i.e. God's word, that man is saved. I do think that this at least is a part of what is being said in our text. However, I do not think that it is the primary meaning, because the divine teachings of God revives our souls. It revives the Christian souls. It is not just for the unconverted. Scripture serves as an encouragement and a guide to believers. Over the last few weeks, Sean has been showing us through Hebrews the importance of biblical rest, rest through obedience. And this has been a great encouragement to me, and I'm sure to many of you, that we should prioritize resting and also using that rest to worship God. In this, our souls are revived and they are restored. Really, think back to any Sunday over the past five years at Redemption Hill, and you will see clearly how the divine teachings of God has revived, renewed, restored, and transformed us. This is the power of God, and it flows from the perfection of his word. This is why we should love his word. It's perfect. And it revives us. But we are not finished with verse 7. We read further that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This is another title for scripture. It's another facet of our diamond. The Lord's testimony is what he has declared to be true. Over the last week, I have been watching a court case. Uh, it has been a murder trial. It is perhaps an odd hobby, but it is a small hobby that I have taken up uh, ever since I was called for jury duty up in Minnesota. I loved it, so I watch court cases. I love hearing the testimonies of witnesses and sifting through the facts to find the truth. The problem is, I cannot be sure of the trustworthiness of the witnesses' testimony. They could be lying to me, or they could be misrepresenting the facts, or they could simply just not be remembering correctly. Not so with our God. God's testimony 
be sure. We can have full faith that God, what God has testified to will come to pass. Another word for testimony here is faithful or to be faithful. All throughout scripture, we have seen the faithfulness of God. God testifies that he will deliver his people from Egypt, and he does so in Exodus. He testifies that he will give his people a land full of milk and honey, the nation of Israel, and he does so in Joshua. He declares that he will give a new covenant in Jeremiah, Jeremiah and he does so by the blood of Christ. There is no testimony testimony as sure and faithful as God's word. And our faith is based on the sureness of God's testimony. Because faith is the belief of the sureness of things hoped for. The Israelites in the midst of Exodus could not see their own deliverance that was yet to come. But on the sureness of God's testimony, their faith rested. We cannot see the future redemption of all things or the return of Christ or our eternity that we will spend with him. But our faith rests that the testimony of God is sure. He will accomplish what he has said. This faith could be called foolish. But we see from Psalm 19 that God's testimony makes us wise. A person could be simple-minded or unlearned, but wisdom does not come from school. Wisdom does not come from a robust understanding of science, philosophy, mathematics, or languages. And these things can be useful. I'm not, I don't want to make light of their usefulness. If you spend any time with me, you will know that I love science, I love math, and I love philosophy but without understanding them through the lens of God's word, it will only lead to foolishness. Look no further than the misuse of science to, to dismiss God's scripture and his existence. And remember what Psalm 14 says, that the fool says there is no God. So then let us be a people that first turns to the testimony of God for wisdom on how we should live, act, and understand the world. And by us, we will be made wise. So far, we have seen two facets of God's divine revelation to us, that it is perfect and that it is sure. We have seen that it revives our souls and makes us wise. I ask you, how can the love of scripture dwindle if we remind ourselves of this. Every time you open up your Bible, you are looking at the perfect and sure word of God. But we are not done. There is more. In verse eight, we read, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening, our eyes. He, here we see a form of parallelism with verse 7. As David turns the diamonds to another facet, he starts to look at the precepts of the Lord. 
This is parallel to the term law. Both titles, laws and precepts for scripture, are highlighting the teachings and guidance of God's word. And while above the law is perfect, here we see that God's precepts are right. Now, while the rightness of God's precepts is implied by their perfection, you can't be perfect and incorrect. Uh, here, the emphasis on correctness is emphasizing God's moral uprightness in his teaching, the straightness or to uh, live upright with a tall back. We also ask ourselves, or sorry, we ask ourselves often, what am I to do? How am I to act? How should I live? Well, we should look to the precepts of God. They will tell us how to live rightly. The effects of these precepts of the Lord and living rightly is that our heart will be rejoiced by it. Our heart will be made glad. This is in parallel to the revival of the soul. However, while the soul is speaking of the inward person, it, the intangible self, the heart here is speaking of the tangible person. To the ancient Hebrews, the heart is the center of the physical, mental, and spiritual life of man. It is a physical organ in our chest, of course, but metaphorically it can do things such as learn or know things or it can have emotions. It can be glad, it can be sorrowful. It is considered the seat of intelligence, or we use phrases like knowing something in our heart. In our modern age, we use a similar use of heart when we talk about, uh, and how many of you have heard, heard the phrase of getting something from your head to your heart? What we are trying to do is describe the process of moving something from an intellectual understanding to believing and being moved by the truths of God. Just as in verse 7, we see here how the precepts and teachings of God rejoice our heart. I cannot tell you how many times my heart has rejoiced at reading passages like Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Each and every Sunday, my heart is filled with joy at the teachings of God. Taken together, verses 7 and 8 cover the whole experience and aspect of the human person, the soul and the heart, the intangible and the tangible. The Word of God, our scriptures, the Bible in your hand, speaks to everything about your life. David continues with his parallelism of verse 7, and he tells us in verse 8 that the commandments of the Lord is pure, and it enlightens our eyes. Pureness, pureness here can also mean uh, radiance, or it's like seeing something clearly in a brightly lit room. And this is tied to the effects of this facet of scripture, that it enlightens our eyes. <clears throat> Eyes 
much like the hearts, are sometimes treated as like pseudo-independent entities. The eyes in Job 29, for example, can approve of things. Or in 2 Peter 2, the eyes can be full of adultery. But we see here that our eyes can be enlightened. They are given understanding. As Christ says in Matthew 6, our eyes are a lamp to the rest of the body, and by our eyes, our bodies can be filled with either light or darkness. In Psalm 19, we see how our eyes can be filled with light. It is by looking at the pure and radiant commandments of God. It is by the light of God's word that we walk. We must not go our own way and rely on our own wisdom. We must always and consistently turn to the scriptures, turn to his commandments, which are clear. John Calvin, I think, summarizes this point well. He says, We know how every man is wedded to himself and how difficult it is to eradicate from our minds the vain confidence of our own wisdom. It is therefore of great importance to be well convinced of this truth, that a man's life cannot be ordered aright unless it is framed according to the laws of God, and that without this he can only wander in labyrinths. In these two verses, we have seen the greatness of God's divine word and how it has function in our lives and benefits us. God's word has been shown to be perfect, sure, right, and pure. Our love for God's word will not grow cold if we keep these truths in our hearts. Verse 7 and 8 have been facets of Scripture that emphasize what Scripture has done and continues to do for us. It revives our souls. It makes us wise. It brings us joy. It enlightens our eyes. But then there is a shift in verse 9 and 10. There's a, a difference in emphasis of the nature of Scripture. Namely, it speaks to what Scripture is in and of itself. In verse 9 we read, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear is really a response of man to scripture, that being worship. The fear of the Lord does not mean, not mean being afraid or scared, but it is the reverential worship of God. Calvin calls this piety. This reverence in verse 9 is called clean. Well, what is clean? Cleanness is oftentimes tied, oftentimes tied to the ritualistic purity in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It can mean both physical cleanness 
and spiritual cleanliness. It is the absence of purity, or sorry, absence of impurity. For the ancient Israelites, a person could not properly worship God without first making themselves clean. The meaning here then is clear. The reverential worship of God that is caused by God's word is free of impurity. We also see in this verse that this reverence endures forever. There are a few possible interpretations of what enduring forever means. This could refer to the individual that has reverence. It can mean that the saints themselves who fear the Lord endure forever. That those who truly respond with faith and fear, that their fear and reverence will never cease. I am unsure really if that is what is in view here. I think that what is more in line with the rest of the passage is that there is a call to fear the Lord. There's a call to have reverence for the Lord. And there's a call to worship, worship the Lord. And it is that call of scripture that endures forever. It is a constant command. Ecclesiastes 12 actually makes that clan, uh, command very clear for us. It says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We now come really to the final facet of scripture that David turns to, and that being the rules of the Lord. The rules of the Lord are true. Yet another synonym is used for God's teaching. And perhaps repetition here means that it's important in some way. Uh, what does it mean, though, for the rules of the Lord to be true? Well, it means that the rules are certain. They are reliable. They are trustworthy. Perhaps it is best to say that Scripture is absolute truth. This is a standard that a postmodern world often forgets, that truth is absolute and that its source is Scripture. Not only do we see that God's word is true, but at the end of verse 9, we see that it is righteous altogether. Or to put it another way, all of the rules of the Lord, each and every one of them, are righteous this is a natural conclusion of the truthfulness of the word. As it is true, it must teach righteousness. It shows us the path. It tells us what is right and what is wrong. By the word of God, our righteousness is established and truth is established. Now, we have covered a lot so far, and I hope I've been able to show you the greatness of scripture we see how it is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. We see that it revives our souls, makes us wise, brings joy to our hearts, and enlightens our eyes. It endures forever and is in every way righteous. What then should be our response? How are we to respond to the truth of Scripture? We should respond as David does in verse 10. 
David writes that the scriptures are to more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. See how precious the word of God is to David. See how precious it should be to us. It is more desirable than gold. Psalm 119 verse 72 makes the very same point when it says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now, the value of gold is something that is well known to us today. Gold is used for jewelry, for its beauty. It is also used for investments because of its worth. Uh, for fun, I wanted to look up what the value of gold is today. Uh, and I found that a single ounce of gold is roughly $2,000, give or take. And an ounce of gold, if you were to shape it into a cube, would be about the size of a single die. And I'm not sure about the rest of you, uh, but I would love to receive a die of gold. However, the Bible in your hands or on your laps is worth more than that ounce of gold. Even if we had the thousands of pieces of Psalm 119, God's word would be worth more. Only it brings us life, joy, and salvation. That is why it is desirable. In the later portion of verse 10, David also says that it is as sweet as honey. This is perhaps a less straightforward comparison to us, but in the ancient world, like gold, honey was a valuable luxury. It was used instead of sugar and was one of the only sources of sweetness, and it was a pleasant addition to many meals. Perhaps a, a modern take of this comparison would be to say that the word of God is tastier than a perfectly medium-rare filet mignon. What David is saying, though, is that the word of God is more pleasing to him than a rare and fine food. With the value and desirability of God's word, I think men, Matthew Henry summarizes it well. He says, the Holy Scripture is much greater benefit to us than day or night, than the air we breathe or the light of the sun. This is why we should love God's word. The question is then, how can we grow in our belief of the greatness of word of God's word as seen through verses 7 and 9? And how can we grow in our love of God's word so that we can be like David in verse 10? If there is one thing I want you to take away is that you can only grow in the love of God's word by intaking God's word, by consuming it. You cannot love that which you do not know. My love for my friends and my family does not grow if I do not know them. Could you imagine the lack of love I would have and the coldness that would grow in my heart towards my wife if I did not spend time with her, if I did not try to get to know her? She would be like a stranger to me. 
And is this not the same source of the coldness in our hearts towards Scripture? Due to the lack of biblical intake of Scripture, over time, it can become like a stranger to us. I want to leave you then with practical ways you can consume and intake Scripture so that you can know it and grow to love it. Your soul will be revived by Scripture. You will be made wise. You will have joy in your heart, and you will have your eyes enlightened. The first way we can intake Scripture is to hear the words of God. Jesus says, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Or Paul writes in Romans, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. There's a great importance in hearing God's word, and it is one of the easiest ways for us to intake scripture. Uh, the good news is that you are doing well already because you're here. Each and every week, your pastors seek to preach faithfully and expo expositionally through the word of God. But what about your Monday through Saturday? You are blessed to be in an age where you can listen to scripture through audiobooks. There are sermons available to, uh, to you through YouTube, and there are countless podcasts, including our podcast, Cornfield Theology, that you can listen to. We are people that can be on the go and still intake the Bible. The next way, and arguably the best way, is to read Scripture. We see in the gospel, Gospels, Jesus consistently chastised the Pharisees with the phrase, Have you not read? The implication is that they should have been reading, and they should have known what God's word has already said. Jesus also has said that man does not live off of bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Tell me this. How can you live off of the word of God if you have not read it? I call you today, and this is something that really is for myself as well. If you do not have a consistent time to read the scriptures, find the time. After all, it's more valuable to us than gold. And I guarantee you, by reading it consistently, you will grow in your love for God's word. A third practice to grow in the love of the word is to study it. This may seem similar to reading the scriptures, but there's more to it. While our devotional reading day to day can be like swimming on the surface of the ocean, the study of God's word is to dive, dive deep like a scuba diver to explore the depths that scripture has. Sean and Pastor Rob and anyone who takes up this pulpit and gives you the word on Sunday studies it. However, the study of God's word is not just for your pastor. It is not just for the theologian and it is not just for the scholar. It is for each and every one of you. Look to the example of the Bereans in Acts 17.11. When they received the word from Paul, they took the time to study the scriptures to see if what Paul preached was true. 
I ask you to do the same with my sermon, this sermon, or Sean's sermon. Study the word to find the truthfulness of what we preach. And if you need a simple guide for studying, it is as simple as asking questions of your text, such as who wrote it? To whom is it written? What is its purpose? And what principles can come from it? You can study a single word in the Bible. You could study a person, or you can choose a specific topic. Whatever you do, take time not just to read, but to dive deep into what Scripture has for you. Finally, I implore you to take the time to memorize Scripture. This is, this is an old-school practice to me. Uh, I was never taught to memorize scripture when I was a kid, since I was kind of in and out of the church here and there, and I think that is a sad thing. There's such a great benefit to memorizing scripture, namely it's so that the word of God can just be at your fingertips when you're in a time uh, of need for guidance or encouragement or to strengthen you to resist temptation. Start with single verses. Or you could start with Psalm 19. By this, your heart will be reminded daily of the many truths that God has given us. And we could be like the psalmist in Psalm 19 when he says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned how my heart can grow cold to God's word at times. But the fire and zeal of my early conversion has dwindled over time. And if you are like me, this is the time to make a change. By making a practice of hearing, reading, studying, and memorizing the word of God, our coldness cannot pass. Why? Because of what we have read of Psalm 19 what it teaches us about the power of God's perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true word. And if your heart has not been cold in the scriptures, then let this be an, an encouragement to you to continue to foster the love of God's word by the consumption of us, of it. And let us, and every one of us, desire the word of God more than any fine gold. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.